Father, out of this, your word, and this very familiar story, we ask that you might speak to us, that you might challenge us, correct us, encourage us. Do whatever it is, Lord, that we need in our particular point of the journey with the Lord Jesus. Deliver us from simply going through the routine of pretending or playing and help us rather to become passionate, fully devoted, entirely committed, sold out 100% to him. Regardless of what anybody else does, help us to follow Jesus. So Lord, speak to us and empower us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very familiar story, we're working our way through the Gospel of John and our theme, our focus for this year is working with God. And in this passage there are lots of applications and points for it. So primarily we're going to look at the passage that Luba read to us, 27 down to 42, but before we get there I want to work our way rather quickly I guess, though I don't, hmm, through the front half of the, um, the chapter. And there is one application I want to make coming out of that, out of the passage that Luba did not read to us. So if you've got your Bible, John chapter 4, I either invite you to listen. I don't know or think this will appear on the screen. It doesn't need to appear on the screen. Um, If you bring your Bible, you get rewarded. If you don't, naughty, naughty, naughty. The Pharisees then heard that Jesus was gaining and baptising more people than John and so he decides, I need to leave this area. And so he does, he heads north. Now please note verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. I want to come back and talk about that point and its application to us. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, being tired from the journey, sat down by the well and it's about 12 o'clock in the daytime. It's the sixth hour and by the Jewish reckoning, 6 a.m., six hours later, noon. It's the middle of the day. Nobody comes in the middle of the day. You know the story. And she comes in the middle of the day because of her own moral failures or because of her own lifestyle or because she's ostracised, she's an outcast from the village where she is, she's not accepted, she doesn't appear to be um, a liked or accepted person. And she comes, verse 7, Samaritan woman came to draw water out of the well, middle of the day, and Jesus said to her, "Um, would you give me a drink, please? Now it doesn't say please, in the Greek or in our English Bibles, but that's the tone of what he meant. Um, If you read, translated it quite literally, if you had like a New American Standard or an ESV, then it probably says, give me a drink, which is rather harsh, isn't it? But he wasn't being harsh. It was, again, it's a language issue in a cultural way. And so he's being polite and he's asking her for a drink, which shocks her. It's interesting that she actually engages him. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You're a man and I'm a woman. And, you know, never the two shall meet. Never the two shall talk. And then how can you also ask me for a drink? You're going to use the same container that I'm using? It's like you're going up to somebody in a cafe, isn't it? And they're sticking from their coffee. And you say, could I have a sip, please? They'd be shocked. It's that same level. At least she's engaging and not just avoiding 
And the next bit says, for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. That's far better translated and understood to be, for the Jews will not use the same containers that the Samaritans are using. Why is it better translated that way? Well, because Jesus is alone and the disciples have gone into a village of Sychar. Why? Uh, to have dealings with the Samaritans, to go and buy something from them. So they do have dealings with Samaritans, but they don't like using the same, touching the same implements or utensils that the Samaritans used. Just like kids, you know, you catch each other's gems. Uh, Jesus said to her, I love this verse, <clears throat> verse 10, take note of it. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who I was, you would have asked me and I would have given it to you. That's what he's saying. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? If you know who I am, then you will ask me for what you need and I will give it to you. It's an incredible statement of God's generosity towards us. God does care about us. And she completely misunderstands, of course. She's thinking in the physical and the natural um, and Jesus is probing for something else. And she says, how are you going to give somebody a drink? You haven't got anything to dig it out of the well. And the well is about 100, 105 feet deep. We know that. Um, where are you going to get this living water? And are you greater than our father Jacob, she says? You know, who are you? Um, Jesus says about, you know, you drink this water again, you'll get thirst again. But the water that I give will be deeply, richly satisfying. When you know Jesus, then there is that experience of deep inner satisfaction and calm, this abundant life that he calls us into. And that's what he desires for us. That's what he desires for you. And if you're not experiencing that, then you're falling short of that which he wants and intends for you. That's not him who's holding out. As the old adage is, if you feel far from God, then guess who moved? Move back. And then she's thinking on this level plane, and so Jesus is then going to, very subtly, I mean, he's the master of this, he just, by asking a question, or opens the heart, um, he says, verse 16, uh, go and call your husband and come back. And he knows now, this is going to be my theological interpretation of this, and this might rattle your cage, but if it does, well, good. Come and talk to me about it. How did he know her situation? How did he know this about her? I don't think it's because he is God, and God knows all things. Not that. Because at the incarnation, he laid aside accessing his divine qualities and attributes. He knew this about her because the Spirit of God, his Heavenly Father, spoke the truth into his mind and into his heart. And as you read through the Gospel of John, you will find Jesus referring to that again and again and again. He speaks that which his Father says to him. He does that which he sees his Father doing. doesn't say it here, but I think in the context of the Gospel, Jesus has this insight, this word of knowledge, this understanding because his heavenly father had revealed it to him and if the father by the spirit can do that in Jesus then the father by the spirit can do that in us if we're listening go and call your husband come back she's exposed and she doesn't tell the full truth she tells the truth but not the full truth she says I don't have a husband 
And Jesus says, you've said rightly, you have no husband. The fact is, you've been married five times. Poor lady, five times. I don't think she was a gold digger. I think she's rather a lady who got used and abused and who got dropped for whatever reasons, whether she was a shocking cook and they just divorced her. Who knows? Five marriage failures. You'd be reluctant to get married again, wouldn't you? But in that society, in that world, for a woman, uh, that would have been incredibly awkward. And so she's actually got a boyfriend and she's living with a boyfriend. Um, and the man that you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true, Jesus says. And then she says, my goodness, you can see into my life. You're a prophet. Now, I don't think she's fobbing him off. I don't think she's saying, well, if you're a prophet, I've got a theological question. Where should we worship? I don't think she's doing that. I think what she's saying is, my goodness, you know me. Where do I go to experience God that I might have salvation, that I might find freedom? I think it's a searching question, not a fobbing off question. And Jesus' response to her, it's, it doesn't really matter where you go. Time is coming, whether it's doesn't matter if it's here in Mount Gerizim in Samaria, or it doesn't matter if it's Jerusalem, the temple. There's a new covenant coming, and people are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's going to come from their heart, from within, and it's going to be according to the truth of God's word. And she says, I know when the Messiah comes, she's got some spiritual understanding, some knowledge. I know that when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus says, quite directly, it's me. The one who is speaking to you is him. I am the Messiah. And that which he said so directly, clearly, to a Samaritan woman, because he could, because she had no preconceived political misunderstandings or ideas of what the Messiah would do. Whereas with his Jewish disciples, whenever they got an inkling that he was the Messiah, then he would say to them, that's correct, but don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Whereas here, he just releases her. Well, there are three things I've taken out of this passage. One out of that part of the story and two out of the part that Luba read to us that we can take for us, that we can learn about how does God work in our world. And the first one is that verse 4, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because he didn't. He didn't have to go through Samaria geographically. It was, in fact, the most direct route. But because the Jews couldn't stand the Samaritans, just like Queenslanders can't stand New South Wales, they'll drive out to Adelaide, the centre, and go down to avoid New South Wales. That's what the Jews used to do. They'd either head to the coast and go up that way, which is a long way, or they'd go east and they'd cross the Jordan and they'd go up the eastern side of the Jordan, which is in Gentile territory, and then cross back over when they got up north into Galilee. They just despised, did not like the Samaritans at all. But there was a route that went straight up through the middle. And this passage says, and Jesus had to go through Samaria. So it's not talking about geography. It's talking about something else. There was a divine compulsion upon him. He had to go there. Something else the Father had said to him. And Jesus, as he says later on in this passage, that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's under that divine compulsion. God is 
directing me. I just feel prompted or spoken to directly, whichever way. And you'll find that again another half a dozen times in John's Gospels, chapter 9, 10, 12, chapter 20. You'll get this. Jesus had to. He was always conscious of doing the Father's will. And that's partly the point. That we need to be tuned in and conscious. What is the Father prompting us? What is he saying to us? We need to be listening. I've called this, God works through divine appointments. God is always orchestrating circumstances, arranging encounters, putting people across your path that he wants you to be able to enter into their life with and vice versa for them to enter into your life with. Divine encounters, promptings, God at work in the world. Not just coincidences, but being at the right place at the right time to speak the right word. That's how God works in the world. So what we need to do is, like the Lord Jesus, I think, as we follow him, is to ask God for divine appointments. Open our eyes to see when he wants us to be having some sort of a gospel conversation with people. I genuinely believe God wants to bring people across your path into your life so that you can influence them for the kingdom. I don't know how you resonate with that, whether you want to be doing that or whether you're going, oh, I don't think I can, I think I need more training or what will I say or <clears throat> I need more time to prepare or, or whatever it is. Well, if you're responding with some sort of resistance or not embracing of that concept, then I would challenge you to ask God, Lord, this week can I have a divine appointment or pretty soon, can I have a divine appointment? Because that will motivate you, it will train you, and it will expose you to an experience of God that you may or may not have had yet in your journey and walk with Jesus. It's certainly the best motivation to encounter somebody and for them to ask you a question. And if you can answer it, then that's terrific. It's wonderful. <clears throat> but even if you can't answer it, the motivation of that will drive you to, I have to find the answer to this question. And that in turn will be causing you to grow. And maybe that's what the Father is doing as well with these divine encounters. But having said that, I am not saying that you don't need training or teaching or instruction or practice. We do. We all do. We all need to be equipped. We all need to be trained. And that's primarily the role of the pastors and the elders, the pastors and teachers. That's their primary role, to equip the saints. You're the saints. You're the ones who are primarily to be equipped. So we need to be providing training and equipment and processes for you and all of those sorts of things because that's what it's about. Jesus says, follow me and... And what? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Divine appointments. God working in the circumstances of your life. When you go home this afternoon and you're resting on your couch, watching whatever it is on TV or reading whatever it is you're going to be reading, and the kids next door go riding their bikes up and down the street and suddenly they jump off their bikes and they fly into your garden. <clears throat> Does this happen to anybody else? <laughs> Happens to me. Had a kid yesterday crossed the road from us. Kevin Smith had come and we'd soiled the top of our lawn so there's little bits of fine 
beach type sand type looking stuff and this little kid comes and he's squatting on my front lawn and he's picking up the soil and he's playing with it chucking it around what would you do? well before it used to irritate me and I used to tell him to go home now still irritates me but I don't do that anymore now I say Jesus doesn't want you to do that (laughs) that's a divine encounter (laughs) is there a person at work whose personality for you is obnoxious you don't like them You don't cope with them. When they're not there, you're happy. When they are, you're irritated. You're annoyed. Wonder why? Why has God allowed that person to be there? What's he trying to do? See, that's the question to ask. Lord, what are you doing? Is this one of those divine encounter type things? This is a divine appointment where I've got to help them or in fact they're going to be impacting me? What's going on here? Always be looking for the father to be at work well let's move on jumping way down then to the passage where Luba read to us and towards the end of it the second thing for us to learn how does God work in our world is that God uses people who are certainly like the Lord Jesus open to divine encounters but he uses people likewise who have a harvest mindset for people who know and are aware that usually, not always, but usually, 98% of the time, 99% of the time, 99.5% of the time, it's a process. There is sowing, there is watering, there is reaping. That's what the Lord Jesus says at the end of this paragraph. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. I have a job, work to do that you know not of, or food to eat that you know not of. And then he goes on to say, don't we say that there are four months until the harvest? So it's December. Harvest time is April. And he says, I tell you, forget the natural. Open your eyes. Look. Look at what God is doing. And I can well imagine the men from Sychar, where the lady had just gone, are coming back over the hills. It's about a half hour walk. They're coming back over the hills, back towards Jacob's well. Maybe they're wearing white. And Jesus says, look. The harvest is already white under harvest. God is already at work. God is doing something. And it wasn't a matter of sowing and watering and reaping. It's almost instant. Occasionally it does happen. Occasionally it does happen. Occasionally he can turn water into wine. He doesn't normally. Normally he lets it rain. And then it goes through the vine. And then it gets harvested. And then it gets bottled. Water into wine it's a process so too God uses those of us who have a harvest mindset which means you see we are committed to sowing or watering or God willing the blessing of actual reaping praying with somebody and leading them into the kingdom reaping them for fellowship and followership of the Lord Jesus a harvest mindset um, somebody with a harvest mindset is somebody who focuses upon sowing 
Now, this is very obvious, but I think it's something we neglect. Sowing always precedes reaping. When we talk about these sorts of things, we tend to focus on reaping. The end part, the last link in the chain of praying the prayer, of leading someone to Christ. That's the end of it. Harvest mindset is, I'm also to be involved laboring in sowing. We are to be sowers. And we inadvertently and incorrectly always glorify this part of it. When we need to honour and encourage this part of it as well. Sowing. The question is not, have you led someone to Christ this week? That's not the question. The question is, have you been open to divine appointments, to God working in people's lives? Have you planted the seed this week? Have you had a gospel conversation this week? And honestly, if the answer to that is no, I have not had one gospel conversation, well then the question then you've got to ask is, well, why not? Do I have to have one every week? No. But if you're not having them, how come? Is it because there's something not right in your life? Is it because you're not looking, you're not aware of what God wants you to be doing? Or is it just simply, you know, in the Father's economy and in the season of where you are, that's just not happening just yet. Nothing wrong with me, nothing wrong with me looking and being sensitive and aware, it's just not happening. So I accept that. He's the one who orders my times and circumstances. Sowing precedes reaping. And if that's the case, then let me encourage you to do these things. To pray. That's what the Lord Jesus says. The workers are few, therefore pray. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers and to thrust them out into the worker field. Pray. Let me encourage you to think this afternoon. Think this morning about who are the people who are in my life who don't know Jesus? As far as I know, they don't know Jesus. Who are they? Write their names down. And it may end up a pretty significant list. But that's all right. That's your target list. They're at least the ones you know about. And always be open to the possibility that God might give you an encounter with somebody else who's not on your list. But make your list of those who don't know Jesus. Pray. Pray that God would give the opportunity to have a gospel conversation with them in his own time. Not forced. Not manipulated. But God doing something in a conversation, in a statement. There's two boys in Bali facing execution. Leads automatically, don't know if you've seen or heard it on the news, but the reporters are now saying these two are focused upon the big questions. What's next? Is their life after death? Their life circumstances are forcing them to face those issues and I my understanding is that one of them is a believer, a follower, a pastor in the Lord Jesus. But the media, the secular media, are aware. They're the big questions of life. It's divine appointment. God is doing something, knocking on the door. And he'll do that in the, those contexts of your people around you. Things will happen in their life and you'll be there and you'll be able to use by God perhaps to speak a word in season or just to be listening, just to be the presence of Jesus. So pray, make a list, discern, Lord, what are you doing? Put their names on my heart, give me a burden for them so that I can be available. Prepare yourself, prepare yourself as best you can. Certainly keep reading your Bible, never stop doing that, but learn the message.
If you don't know the gospel, if you're not confident, somebody came to you and said, could you please tell me what the gospel of Jesus is? If you draw a blank to that, then come and have a chat. It's our role and responsibility to be equipping you and training you, and it's easy, not hard. Hard to do, but knowing the facts, not hard. If you know the alphabet, you can know the gospel. If you know your mobile phone number, you can know the gospel. Prepare yourself. Learn more about what God is like and his nature. Learn common objections to questions that people ask. And whatever you do, persevere, don't give up. Sow and keep on sowing. And if you never see any fruit come from it, then trust that your labours faithfully in sowing, that the Father's going to do something with it. And make sure that you certainly live a godly, consistent life. Don't yell at kids who pray with, play with sand on the front lawn, but demonstrate God's love and patience towards them. Live godly, live consistent, be salt and light. So let me ask you, let me challenge you and ask God this. Lord, can you turn me into a sower or a reaper with my friends and relatives? A sower, have gospel conversations, or even a reaper to lead them to Jesus. Do that. Do it consistently. And if you need improvement, if you need help, then take out the yellow card and write on it and say, can you please train me? Can you please help me? Can you please run a course that I cannot turn up for? Um, Sowing precedes reaping. Number two, the reality is those with a harvest mindset are quite accepting their kingdom focus, that you may do a lot of the sowing and a lot of the conversation, answering a lot of the questions, and somebody else gets to lead them to Christ. They do the reaping. That's the reality. The Father seems to like to do that. That it's rare. It's not, not, it's not usual that the one doing all of the sowing is also the one right at the end who does the reaping. It does happen. But he loves to use different people. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted... Apollos watered, God gave the growth. A harvest mindset. Certainly that's what Billy Graham had. He would say that it was not him at all. He simply came in at the end and he was harvesting that which people had faithfully been labouring and planting and sowing and praying into people's lives. And God just was pleased to use him often at the end. I guess I should say also that sometimes the harvest can be ready when you don't expect it. You plant the seed and they're ready, bang, already. You always need to be, allow the father to do what he's doing. Jesus had one conversation with his lady and she comes to faith in him. So he was what, at the end of the process? Or God had speeded the process up? Don't know. But don't try to contain God. Let God be God. Let him work his purposes out. And you will find, like Jesus did, that there is incredible joy and reward in doing that which the Father wants you to do. God works through divine appointments. God works through people who have this um, harvest mindset. And so we need to look and pray and discern 
We need to ask God that he would do it in our life. How do you respond to that? Will you ask God this week to do that? Thirdly and finally, God uses people who are willing to invite others to come and check out Jesus. If you look at this lady, this woman of Samaria, then what she does is incredibly simple. She has this encounter with Jesus and she, out of excitement, out of generosity, she leaves the water pot there. Why do you think she left the water pot there? Well, because she didn't want to carry a full pot of water because she wanted to get back as quickly as possible, maybe. She left the water pot there for Jesus to use, maybe. Whatever it was, she left it there because she knew she was coming back. And she runs off immediately to go to people who would not normally associate with her or talk with her. She goes to the men of the village. And what does she say to them? She's one smart lady. She does not say to them, come and I'll introduce you to the Messiah. Come and hear the Messiah. She asks a provocative question. She's not forcing it. She's just raising the possibility, the inquiry through a question. I've just met a man who told me everything about me. He couldn't be the Messiah, could he? That's her question, literally. He couldn't be the Messiah, could he? And so God had done something in their lives because they drop everything. They came. Jesus stays for two days. The Holy Spirit breaks down all these barriers between Jews and Samaritans over that period of time. God used her testimony, her question, to connect with these villagers who then they come and invite Jesus. God can do that with you just by you simply asking a question of your friends, your relatives. Not forcing it, just when it's natural. Ask the right question. And if you study the four Gospels, you study the life of Jesus, you'll find that there are at least 36 individual occasions where he is speaking in a conversation with somebody. And usually he's asking a question. Here is a list of questions that we could ask. You could ask anybody this question. You could ask your friends and relatives. Ask strangers on a bus, on a train. Do you have any kind of spiritual belief? Why, yes, I do. I follow Buddha. Oh, that's interesting. Tell me about Buddha. <clears throat> See where the Father goes with it. Second question, who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus was? Third question, do you think there is anything after this life? Is there a heaven and a hell? What do you think? And people will answer your questions. If you died, where would you be going, do you think? Why would God let you into heaven? And this is a brilliant question. If what you believe is not true, do you want me to tell you? I think that's a brilliant question. Do you think there is life after death? Yes, I do. I think everybody goes to heaven. Wow, it's interesting. 
If what you believe is not true, would you want me to tell you? No, no, it's okay, I think this. You can think what you like, okay. You don't have to force it. It's not our job. The Father will work. He will open their hearts. And to the people who say, yes, actually, that would be good. How do you, what do you think? Well, I think there is a heaven. I also think there is a hell. And I think there is a God and he's just and he's fair and he's loving and he is incredibly kind. He wants everybody to go to heaven, but not everybody is. That's why he sent Jesus. That's what I think. <clears throat> See if there's any more dialogue. Just by asking questions. Not being forceful, not being religious, just being natural in conversation. That's what Jesus did. That's what we can do. So God is a God who works through divine appointments, and I'm praying that he'll give me and that he'll give you lots of them in coming days. God works through those who have a harvest mindset. We are to be sowers. We're to be waterers. We're to be reapers. It's a process. And God uses those who are willing to invite others to come and examine Jesus, come and check him out. And God wants to work through us this year, this week, in your lives and in our world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we acknowledge gladly that you are the sovereign one and that you work in our world. You work through people just like us that you're pleased and in fact you desire for us to be instruments in your hands. Lord, could you give us divine appointments with people who need Jesus? Could you develop in us a harvest mindset committed thoroughly to the process of sowing the seed, of watering it by asking questions and even having the courage, Lord, sometimes to be the last link to uh, to reap the harvest for the king. Lord, give us the courage likewise to be inviting people simply to encounter more about Jesus and the truth as it is in him. Lord, use us, I pray, to advance Jesus' kingdom in his name, we ask it. Amen.